Section 51 of the History of Prostitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ramon Escamilla. The History of Prostitution by William Sanger. Section 51. Chapter 34. New York. Statistics. Part 1. Means of support. Occupation. Treatment of domestics. Needlewomen. Weekly earnings. Female labor in France. Competition. Opportunity for employment in the country. Effects of female occupations. Temptations of seamstresses. Indiscriminate employment of both sexes in shops. Factory life. Business of the fathers of prostitutes. Mothers' business. Assistance to parents. Death of parents. Intoxication. Drinking habits of prostitutes. Delirium tremens. Liquor sold in houses of prostitution. Parental influences. Religion of parents and prostitutes. Amiable feelings. Kindness and fidelity to each other. Question. Is prostitution your only means of support? Resources. Numbers dependent solely upon prostitution, 1,698. Have other means of support, 302. Total, 2,000. No surprise will be excited by the fact indicated above, that 17 of every 20 women examined in New York reply to this question in the affirmative for it is almost impossible to conceive that any honest occupation can be associated with vice of such character. The small minority who have other means consists principally of women who work at their trades or occupations at intervals, or who receive some slight payment for assisting in the ordinary work, or for sewing, in the houses of ill fame where they reside. It is difficult to believe women working as domestics in brothels are virtuous themselves, on the contrary, it is a well-known fact that they are, in every sense of the word, prostitutes, the only difference being that they work a portion of the time, while the boarders do not work at all. Those who follow an employment at intervals are mostly women whose trades are uncertain, and who are liable at certain seasons of the year to be without employment. Then, real necessity forces them on the town until a return of business provides them with work they are more to be pitied than blamed. There is another class not entirely dependent on prostitution. It consists mostly of German girls, who receive from five to six dollars per month as dancers in the public ballrooms. In the first ward of New York, there are several of these establishments, and the captain of police in that district has attached some interesting memoranda to his returns, from which is gleaned the following information respecting these places and their inhabitants. It is submitted to the reader in order that he may draw his own conclusions as to the virtue of the dancers. 
Quote, These dance houses are generally kept by Germans, who consider dancing a proper and legitimate business. They are in general very quiet. The girls employed to dance do not consider themselves prostitutes, because the proprietors will not allow them to be known as such. Each girl receives monthly from five to six dollars and her board, and almost every one of them hires a room in the neighborhood for the purpose of prostitution. I have classed them all as prostitutes, because, in addition to the previous fact, I know that the majority of them have lived as such. Very few of these girls are excessive drinkers. Although the regulations of the ballroom require them to drink after each dance with their partners, yet the proprietor has always a bottle of water slightly colored with port wine, from which they drink, and he charges the partner the same price as for liquor. End quote. Alluding to the keeper of one of these places, the same officer says, quote, The proprietress of this house is a German woman over seventy years of age. She established the house over eighteen years since, to my certain knowledge. Her husband had just then arrived from Germany with their four children. They were not worth one hundred dollars at that time. The man died three years ago, and by his will directed forty thousand dollars to be divided among his children. The widow is possessed of an equal amount in her own name. End quote. Question. What trade or calling did you follow before you became a prostitute? Occupations. Numbers. Artist. One. Nurse in Bellevue Hospital, New York. One. School teachers. Three. Fruit hawkers. Four. Paper box makers. Five. Tobacco packers. Seven. Attended stores or bars. Eight. Attended school. Eight. Embroiderers. Eight. Fur sewers. Eight. Hat trimmers. Eight. Umbrella makers. 8. Flower makers, 9. Shoe binders, 16. Vest makers, 21. Cap makers, 24. Book folders, 27. Factory girls, 37. Housekeepers, 39. Milliners, 41. Seamstresses, 59. Tailoresses, 105. Dressmakers, 121. Servants, 933. Lived with parents or friends, 499. Total, 2,000. Wherever the social condition of woman has been considered, one fact has always been painfully apparent. Namely, the difficulties which surround her in any attempt to procure employment beyond the beaten track of needlework or domestic service. Numerous light or sedentary employments now pursued by men might with much greater propriety be confided to women, but custom seems to have fixed an arbitrary law which cannot be altered. If a lady enters a dry goods store, she is waited upon by some stalwart young man, 
whose energy and muscle would be far more useful in tilling the ground or in some other outdoor employment. If she wishes to make a purchase of jewelry, she is served by the same class of attendants. Why should not females have this branch of employment at their command? It would in a majority of cases be more consonant with the feelings of the purchasers, and consequently more to the interest of storekeepers. It would open an honorable field of exertion to the women, and improve the condition of the men who now monopolize such employments, by forcing them to obtain work suitable to their sex and strength, and driving from the crowded cities into the open country some whose effeminacy is fast bringing them to positive idleness and ruin. Many people are prepared to frown upon any attempt to improve the social condition of dependent women. They regard it as part of that myth which they call opposition to constituted authorities, without any reference to the consideration which should form the basis of all society, namely, ensuring the greatest amount of good to the greatest number. Others who are opposed to any amelioration sustain their views by a libel upon woman and upon her almighty creator. They assert that she has not sufficient intellect for anything beyond routine employment, or blame her because she has received only such an imperfect education as the world has thought proper to award her, and thus has not had an opportunity to cultivate her faculties. It is not necessary to point to the productions and achievements of women even in our own days, omitting all mention of what has been done heretofore, to expose the fallacy of this proposition. The facts are patent to the world. With special reference to the subject in hand, it may be asserted, unhesitatingly and without fear of contradiction, that were there more avenues of employment open to females, there would be a corresponding decrease in prostitution and many of those who are now ranked with the daughters of shame would be happy and virtuous members of the community. In the list of occupations pursued by the women who are now prostitutes in New York, a most lamentable monotony is visible. Domestic service and sewing are the two principal resources. From the gross number of two thousand, deduct those who lived with their parents or friends, children attending school, domestic servants, and housekeepers, amounting in the aggregate to 1,322, and there is a balance of 678, nearly 600 of whom depend upon needles and thread for an existence. In the total number reported, there are only four, or exactly one in every 500, who relied for support upon any occupation requiring mental culture, that is, one artist and three school teachers. This fact in itself sustains the theories that mental cultivation and sufficient employment are restrictions to the spread of prostitution. If women are compelled to undergo merely the slavery of life, no moral advancement can ever be expected from them. If every approach to remunerative employment is systematically closed against them, nothing but degradation can ensue, and the moralist who shuddered with horror at the bare possibility of a woman being allowed to earn a competent living in a respectable manner will ejaculate, What awful depravity exists in the female sex! He and others of his class drive a woman to starvation by refusing to give her employment, and then condemn her for maintaining a wretched existence at the price of virtue. But to notice more particularly the employments which the courtesans of New York have followed, the domestic servants amount to 931. 
No modern fashion has yet been introduced to deprive females of this sphere of labor, but so progressive is the age that even that may be accomplished within a few years, and the advertising columns of the newspapers teem with announcements of some newly minted scrubbing machine. The space will not permit any extended remarks on this employment, but, while allowing that many employers treat their servants as human beings gifted with the same sensibilities and feelings as themselves, it must be regretted that there are others who use them in a manner which would bring a blush to the cheek of a southern slave-driver. With such mistresses, the incapacity of servants is a constant theme, nor do they ever ask themselves if they have learned the science of governing. Assuming that they themselves are right, they conclude that the help is of course wrong. Is it any wonder that girls are driven to intoxication and disgrace by this conduct? Another reason which forces servant girls to prostitution is the excessive number who are constantly out of employment, estimated at one-fourth of those resident in the city, an evil which would be diminished were there more opportunities for female labor. What is the position of the needlewoman? Far worse than that of the servant. The latter has a home and food in addition to her wages. The former must lodge and keep herself out of earnings which do not much exceed in amount the servant's pay. The labor by which this miserable pittance is earned, so truthfully depicted in the universally known Song of the Shirt, is distressing and enervating to a degree. Working from early dawn till late at night, with trembling fingers, aching head, and very often an empty stomach, the poor seamstress ruins her health to obtain a spare and insufficient living. There is no variety in her employment. It is the same endless round of stitches, varied only by a wearisome journey once or twice a week to the store whence she receives her work, and where the probabilities are that a portion of her scanty wages will be deducted for some alleged deficiency in the work. She has no redress, but must submit or be discharged nor is the position of a milliner or dressmaker much superior to this. She has a room provided for her in the employer's establishment, and there she must remain so long as the inexorable demands of fashion, or the necessity of preparing bonnets or dresses for some special occasion, require. It matters not if she faint from exhaustion and fatigue. Mrs. Blank wants her ball dress tomorrow, and the poor slave, we use this word advisedly, must labor as if her eternal salvation rested on her nimble fingers. But the gay robe which is to deck the form of beauty is completed. The hour of release has come at last, and, as at night the wearied girl walks feebly through the almost deserted streets, she meets some of the frail of her own sex, bedecked in finery, with countenances beaming from the effects of their potations, and the thought flashes across her mind, they are better off than I am. Her human nature can scarcely repress such an exclamation, which is too often but the precursor of her own ruin. Paper-box makers, tobacco-packers, and book-folders are no better off. They must work in crowded shops, must inhale each other's breath during the whole day, for such workshops are not the best ventilated buildings in New York, generally speaking, and receive, as their remuneration, barely sufficient to find them food, clothes, and shelter. It is needless to pursue this subject. Enough has surely been advanced to demonstrate the necessity of a more extended field of female labor. 
Question. How long is it since you abandon your trade as a means of living? Length of time. Numbers. Three months. 174. Six months. 151. One year. 273. Two years. 254. Three years. 147. Four years. 104. Five years. 117. Ten years. 90. Twelve years and upward. 16. Not abandoned. 296. Unascertained. 378. Total. 2000. A very few words will suffice on this table, as the remarks which would arise from it have been already made in reference to other questions. In most instances the occupation is abandoned as soon as the first false step is taken, unless in those cases of destitution where a previous want of employment renders prostitution necessary as the only means of living. Of course, as before observed, a life of prostitution must be incompatible with any description of honest employment. And, in those cases where a woman has followed any trade or occupation after she had yielded to promiscuous intercourse, it will generally be found that her motive was to deceive the world as to her own pursuits, or else to satisfy her conscience that she was not entirely depraved. Question. What were your average weekly earnings at your trade? Average earnings. Numbers. One dollar. Thirty-four. Two dollars. Three hundred and thirty-six. Three dollars. Two hundred and thirty. Four dollars. One hundred and twenty-seven. Five dollars. Sixty-eight. Six dollars. Twenty-seven. Seven dollars. Eight. Eight dollars. Five. Twenty dollars. One. Fifty dollars. One. Unascertained. Six hundred and sixty-three. Total. Two thousand. This question is of equal importance with that referring to the number of employments available for females, and the replies quoted above will give as many reasons for prostitution as in the former case. From the work of a French author on this subject, the following is condensed as indicative of the hardships and insufficient remuneration of women employed in factories in France. Quote, women are employed principally in the manufacture of cotton, silk, and wool, the preparation of cotton presents two dangerous features, in the beading and dressing, which are performed solely by women. In the manufacture of silk, there are also two processes dangerous to life, and these are performed by women. The woolen manufacture has no real danger, but in the carding, and all the carders are women. Of these mortal occupations, there is not one that will afford the workwoman a sufficient maintenance, the average wages being from 16 to 25 sous per day, subject to the fluctuations of trade. End quote. 
Commenting upon these facts, the Westminster Review says, quote, We took some pains to ascertain the relative wages of men and women employed in the same trades, in England, and almost in every instance it appeared that for the same work, performed in the same time, they received one-third less, sometimes one-half less than men, without any inferiority of skill being alleged. One master gravely said that he, quote, paid women less because they ate less, end quote. In a subsequent chapter of this volume will be found some particulars of the wages paid in manufacturing districts of the United States, and the same disparity between male and female operatives will be noticed. Monsieur Parent du Châtelet assigns insufficient wages as one of the principal causes of prostitution in Paris. He says, quote, what are the earnings of our laundresses, our seamstresses, our milliners? Compare the wages of the most skillful with those of the more ordinary and moderately able, and we shall see if it be possible for these latter to procure even the strict necessaries of life. And if we farther compare the price of their work with that of their dishonor, we shall cease to be surprised that so great a number should fall into improprieties thus made almost inevitable." This low rate of wages is defended upon the plea of competition. A manufacturer practically says, if one man or woman will do my work for five percent less than another, I must employ him or her, unless I am prepared to carry on my business at a positive loss, for if I do not give them work, my neighbor will. Valid as this reason may be in the old countries, where the supply of labor far exceeds the demand, it is invalid in America where there is a constant demand for workers. Our cities are overcrowded. Remove some of their inhabitants to the country. In our cities, work cannot be obtained. In the country, both male and female laborers are urgently required. In cities, an unemployed woman is exposed to innumerable temptations. In the country, she need never be unemployed, and consequently would escape such dangers. The difference between the new and old worlds is simply that in the former the cities are overcrowded, but the country is free. In the latter, both cities and country are full to repletion. In the city of New York, one-fourth part of the domestic servants are constantly out of employment. Remove them, and, while the wants of the community will be amply supplied, the market value of a faithful servant would increase to a living rate. Send away a number of needlewomen, reducing the supply of labor to meet the actual demand. Tailors, shirtmakers, and dressmakers must employ seamstresses, and in such cases they could not obtain them without paying remunerative wages. The prices of our wearing apparel would probably be advanced 5%, with a saving of 15% taxation in the reduced expenses of police, judiciary, prisons, hospitals, and charitable institutions. The experience of the winter of 1857 to 1858 has proved that but very slight difficulties attend this plan when effectively carried out, and to the Children's Aid Society and the other benevolent organizations, which have shown not only the possibility but the success of the system, all praise is due. No man entering upon a farm in the West requires any argument to convince him that his property will increase in value as it is cultivated and many will gladly advance the sum necessary to pay the expenses of a servant's journey out. 
as fast as men are sent to fell the timber or break the prairie the farmer's necessities force him to engage women for the increasing work of his house and dairy and to supply the places of those who obtain husbands in their new home when the tide of emigration to the australian colonies commenced nearly the whole of those who left england were single men and in a few months the cry was ringing from one end of the island to the other send us female help send us wives a benevolent woman resident in the colony repeated the demand and subsequently lent the aid of her powerful talents to it she made a voyage to england and there influenced public opinion to such an extent that the british government yielded to the outside pressure and many shiploads of well-recommended healthy and virtuous women were sent out at the national expense to supply the want the subsequent advancement of the colony has proved that the measure was a judicious one nor can the abuses to which it became subject detract from its merits similar plans with respect to destitute children have been practiced in new york for several years and their subsequent extension to meet the wants of adult females has been limited only by the means of the projectors if the necessity and prospective benefit of this emigration were known and appreciated the required funds could be raised without any difficulty the citizens of new york are never dilatory in responding to calls upon their benevolence in aid of any practicable and judicious scheme of philanthropy and under the management of an energetic business committee arrangements could be made which would render the movement self-supporting within a few years the competition which keeps wages at starvation point is aggravated by a notion entertained by many native women and by some foreigners who have long been in the country that domestic service is ungenteel this idea drives them to needlework to maintain their respectability and thus while service is abandoned the ranks of seamstresses are augmented by decreasing the number to be employed and consequently advancing their wages and ensuring better treatment from their employers the servant's life would be divested of many of its objections and old-fashioned housework would once more be deemed respectable this consummation rests more with mistresses than servants the former give tone to the manners of the latter it cannot be denied that many young women date their ruin from unkind or unwomanly treatment by their mistresses who have given a free rein to their caprices confident that if a girl left them they could soon supply her place this confidence would be shaken if a housekeeper knew that servants were less plentiful and her own interest would induce her to use well those who suited her such a conclusion would be an important step toward reducing prostitution and elevating the character of the masses it cannot be expected that this vice will decrease in new york when five hundred and thirty-four out of a total of two thousand earn only one dollar weekly no economist however closely he may calculate will pretend that fourteen cents a day will supply any woman with lodging food and clothes she who should attempt to exist on such a sum would starve to death in less than a month and yet it is a notorious fact that many are expected to support themselves upon it how such expectations are realized and the sad manner in which the deficiency is made up are amply shown by the result of this and similar investigations here and elsewhere thus far manufacturers have been blamed for the depression of wages but is not the consumer equally open to censure he purchases an article of dress from a because it is a trifle cheaper than in b's store 
The cost of the raw material is the same to each, and each uses the same quantity in every article. But if A can find customers for three times the amount of goods which B can sell, on account of the saving he effects through paying lower wages, it is scarcely in human nature, decidedly not in commercial nature, to be expected that he will refuse the opportunity. He flatters himself that competition forces him to make the reduction, and as the public do not denounce his action, but flock to his store, so long as his price continues lower than his neighbor's, he concludes that his customers should bear the blame. Nor are his conclusions false. The public sanction a system which enforces starvation or crime, and, for the sake of saving a few cents, add their influence to swell the ranks of prostitutes, and condemn many a poor woman to eternal ruin. Before leaving the question of employment, the effects of different branches of female occupation, as inducing or favoring immorality, must be noticed. Apart from the low rate of wages paid to women, thus causing destitution which forces them to vice, the associations of most of the few trades they are in the habit of pursuing are prejudicial to virtue. The trade of tailoress or seamstress may be cited as a case in point. One mode in which this business is conducted between employer and employed is as follows. The woman leaves either a cash deposit or the guarantee of some responsible person at the store, and receives a certain amount of materials to be made up by a specified time. When she returns the manufactured goods, she is paid, and has more work given her to make up. This may seem a very simple course, and so it is, but one feature in it gives rather a sinister aspect. The person who delivers the materials, receives the work, and pronounces on its execution is almost invariably a man, and upon his decision rests the question whether the operative shall be paid her full wages, or whether any portion of her miserable earnings shall be deducted because the work is not done to his satisfaction. In many cases, he wields a power the determinations of which amount to this. Shall I have any food today, or shall I starve? It is reasonable to conclude that hardly anything short of positive want can force a girl to undertake this labor at its present price, and it is reasonable to imagine that her necessities will force her to use every means to accomplish her task in a satisfactory manner. If she finds that a smile bestowed upon her employer or his clerk will aid her in the struggle for bread, she will not present herself with a scowling face, or if a kind entreaty will be the means of procuring her a dinner as a favor, she will not expose herself to hunger by demanding it as a right. In this there is no moral or actual wrong, but there are instances where lubricity has exacted farther concessions, and the sacrifice of a woman's virtue been required as an equivalent for the privilege of sewing at almost nominal prices. If this is conceded, the victim may be assured of the best work and the most favors, until her seducer becomes satiated with possession, when means will easily be found to displace her for some new favorite. If the outrageous request is denied, she will get no more work from that shop, and may seek other employment with almost a certainty of meeting the same indignity elsewhere. That this is a frequent occurrence, unfortunately, cannot be denied. That it exercises much influence on public prostitution cannot be doubted. The employment of females in various trades in this city, in the pursuit of which they are forced into constant communication with male operatives, has a disastrous effect upon their characters. 
the daily routine goes very far toward weakening that modesty and reserve which are the best protectives against the seducer and renders them liable to temptation in many shapes a girl frequently forms an attachment to a man working in the same shop believing it to be a mutual one and only finds out her mistake when she has yielded to his persuasions and is deserted or women contract acquaintance for the sake of having an escort on their holiday recreations or because some other woman has done so or as the mere gratification of an idle fancy but all tend in the same direction and aid to undermine principles and jeopardize character in this connection only city employments have been mentioned but the same reasoning may be applied with greater force to factory life in any of our manufacturing districts there the operatives of both sexes in one mill may sometimes be counted by hundreds and their large numbers cause a more frequent and constant communication than in smaller workshops it has been urged in support of the superior morality of such places that the very nature of the employment requires the most constant attention to be paid to it and precludes the possibility of any idle time we freely concede to the apologists all the advantages they claim and admit that during the time say ten hours daily when the machinery is running neither males nor females can abandon their respective positions but unfortunately for the force of the argument the motion is not a perpetual one a steam engine or a water wheel can run for a week or a month without complaining of fatigue but human machines become exhausted after a few hours consecutive labor machinery can receive the necessary attention and supplies without arresting its progress but men and women must sometimes cease work in order to eat and drink granting then that during actual working hours a young woman cannot leave her post yet the mind is free and the range of thought when locomotion is denied her will often turn to the hardships of her position busy as may be her hands her brain is disengaged and while her mechanical duties are adroitly performed the mental faculties will be in full exercise and for these she has ample scope dissatisfied with her close confinement in the factory weary of the dreadful monotony which makes today but a repetition of yesterday and a sure type of tomorrow she is happy when the bell rings the signal to leave work to escape from the building and renew outside its walls an acquaintance she has formed before and too frequently the persuasions and promises of her lover will induce her to seek in some less guarded position the independence for which she longs it may be taken as a general rule that any confinement or restraint which is irksome to human nature must result injuriously domestic servants are not exempt from temptation when employed in large establishments where both sexes are engaged and many a poor girl ascribes her ruin to the associations formed in places of this description thus far it has been supposed that man is the chief agent in the propagation of vice nor is there any apparent reason to recede from that position the numerous cases of seduction under false promises and subsequent desertion of seduction by married men of violations of helpless and unprotected females are abundantly sufficient to prove this much as it may be regretted for the credit of the stronger sex and also to vindicate the opinion that employing males and females under one roof in different branches of the same business has a strong tendency to promote prostitution sometimes however it is true that woman lost and abandoned herself 
lends her aid to drag her fellow woman down to perdition. In many of the stores and workshops in our city, in every factory throughout the country, such are to be found, and their insidious influence is quickly felt. By false representations and elaborate coloring, they work upon the minds of the simple, or inflame the passions of the ambitious, but in either case their object is the same, and in it they frequently succeed. Question. What business did your father follow? Father's business. Numbers. Architects. Four. Auctioneer. One. Agents. Five. Butchers. Forty-seven. Blacksmiths. Sixty-three. Barbers. Two. Bakers. Twenty-one. Builders. Eleven. Bookkeepers. Three. Boatmen. Seven. Brothel keeper. One. Bankers. Two. Carpenters. One hundred and thirty-nine. Carmen. Twenty-six. Coopers. Nineteen. Clerks. Thirty-two. Coachmen. Ten. Clergymen. Six. Coachmakers. Nine. Cabinetmakers. Sixteen. Diver. One. Drover. One. Dyers. Three. Engineers. Eighteen. Engraver. One. Farmers. Four hundred and forty. Fishermen. Six. Grocers. Fourteen. Gilders. Two. Gardeners. Ten. Glassblowers. Two. Hotel and tavern keepers. Thirty-six. Hatters. Thirteen. Jewelers. Ten. Laborers. Two hundred and fifty-nine. Liquor dealers. Twenty-two. Lawyers. Thirteen. Lumber merchants. Seven. Livery staple keepers. Five. Millers. Twenty. Masons. Eighty-two. Merchants. Thirty-seven. Molders. Three. Manufacturers. Twenty-four. Musicians. Eight. Men of property. Five. Naval officers. Thirty-one. Overseers. Five. Peddlers. Five. Policemen. Fifteen. Painters. Sixteen. Printers. Three. Planters. Five. Pavers. Four. Physicians and surgeons. Nineteen.
plumbers, two, pawnbrokers, two, ship carpenters, twenty-three, sailors, thirty-five, shoemakers, forty-eight, stage drivers, four, storekeepers, thirty-seven, stonecutters, twenty, school teachers, fourteen, silversmiths, three, soldiers, thirty-eight, sailmakers, four, saddlers, fourteen, servants, four, surveyor, one, tailors, thirty-five, traders, eleven, tanners and couriers, seven, tinsmiths, two, weavers, twenty, wheelwright, one, unascertained, one hundred and six, total, two thousand. This table shows that almost all classes of society are exposed to the influences which result in prostitution. From the children of men of property, bankers, merchants, and professional men, down to the families of mechanics and laborers. The numerous and varied occupations of the fathers of those women who answered the question renders any classification of them almost impossible. A majority of the parents were either mechanics or laborers, men who earned the daily food for themselves and families by manual labor, and whose resources would be governed by the ordinary fluctuations of trade. In following the proportion of natives and foreigners as exhibited in previous tables, it must be remembered that about five-eighths of these fathers were residents of other countries than the United States when those daughters were born, whose replies form the bases of these statistics, and it is scarcely necessary to say that labor is nowhere so well remunerated as with us. The average wages, for instance, of a first-class mechanic in England or Ireland seldom exceed and indeed rarely amount to nine dollars per week, and an ordinary laborer is very well paid if he receives half that sum. This estimate refers to large cities, where the expenses of maintaining a family are as heavy as in New York. And it indicates poverty, which has already been proved to be one of the main causes of female depravity. If the investigation is pursued into the rural districts of Great Britain, the wages of mechanics and laborers will be found lower than they are in large cities, without any material reduction in the necessary expenditure except in the item of house rent. The pitiful amounts paid to agricultural laborers, often only twenty-five cents a day, will surprise anyone who is not fully acquainted with the hardships endured by this unfortunate class, and the state of destitution in which they are compelled to exist, it cannot, with any propriety, be called living and to rear their families. More than one-half of the foreigners are from Ireland, and no person acquainted with the social history of that unhappy country need be told of the want and deprivation endured by its peasantry, of their useless efforts to benefit themselves, or of the ruin, starvation, and disease with which they are so frequently afflicted. To constitute a farmer in Ireland, a man must hire an acre or two of land, for which he pays a heavy rent as two or sometimes three middlemen have to obtain their profits before the landlord receives his share. 
In this field he plants as many potatoes as can be crowded into it, and in his hut or cabin he keeps a pig or some fowls, regularly domesticated as members of the family, and receiving more attention than the children. From the sale of the pig the rent has to be obtained, and from the proceeds of the poultry, with the potatoes, all their wants have to be supplied. Thus, with the potatoes he raises for almost his sole means of support, with peat from some bog in the neighborhood to furnish him with fuel, he lives until the impoverished soil refuses to yield its annual crop, or yields it in a diseased and poisonous state, when fever and starvation come to fill his cup of misery and render him dependent upon charity for an existence. And this in a land peculiarly rich in all that is necessary to make its people a great and happy nation. This has been known as the state of Ireland for many years, and in this condition it unquestionably was when the women who here are now prostitutes were born there. Whether the severe lessons taught by the last famine, the more enlightened and liberal policy which has governed England since that terrible calamity, in its legislation for the sister island, the introduction of Anglo-Saxon capital and enterprise, and the large exodus of the natives of the soil have been of advantage to the country, it is difficult to determine in the face of the conflicting testimony furnished respectively by English and Irish partisans. It seems reasonable to conclude that an improvement must have taken place under these circumstances. But this is not the place to argue the political questions so often agitated there and elsewhere. It is enough for the purpose of this work to show the poverty of twenty years ago, and the vice resulting from it now, and to remind the reader that because of the lamentable manner in which the Irish have suffered in their own country, we must be taxed in New York for the support in hospitals, almshouses, and prisons of the women whose poverty compelled their crime. End of section 51 Recording by Ramon Escamilla Conway, Arkansas R-A-M-O-N-E-S-C-A-M-I-L-L-A dot wordpress dot com